I'm gonna take it out of the field of like art and craft and bring it into something else like sports. When sports became more diverse, you got a lot of different things. You got a three-point line that was developed. <laughs> you know, that was, that was developed out of diversity because, you know, people were coming in dunking. Nobody's seen a dunk before. So it's like, oh, we got to do something about that. Here's a three-point line. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Pierre-Carlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, which is produced by the Thomas S. Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. In this episode, we'll be speaking with a first-class artist we've had on the podcast. His name is Cedric Mitchell. Cedric is based in Los Angeles and for the last 10 years has created an array of both decorative and functional pieces. He's completed residencies at some of the most prestigious craft institutes in the country, including Penland School of Craft, Pilchuck Glass School, and Corning Museum of Glass. In 2018, he officially launched his own business, Cedric Mitchell Design, through which he continues to create blown glass for retailers nationwide and for the general public. Cedric is also the events and resource manager for Crafting the Future, a nonprofit that works to diversify the fields of art, craft, and design by connecting BIPOC artists with opportunities that will help them thrive. We'll learn a lot more about Crafting the Future in this interview. Cedric spoke to me from his studio in El Segundo, California. I started the interview by asking him to take us back to when he first discovered that glass was his medium. I'm originally from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, I moved to Los Angeles about seven years ago. So when I was in Tulsa, I was actually a hip-hop artist, a rap musician. I was also enrolled at the Tulsa Community College there studying my basics for business. One day I was in the studio with my friend, um, Steve, and we came about the conversation of glass and glass blowing. And then he informed me that there was a glass studio in downtown Tulsa and they actually offered glass blowing as an elective through the community college. So I was. Wait, how did the conversation? It's not every day that people start talking about glass blowing. How did it come up? Oh, well, we were just taking a smoke break. So he had a bong. Yeah, so gotcha. he had a bomb, yeah, and he was telling me about his friend who made the bomb oh. in Miami, you know, and he was a glass artist. It was an artisanal bong. Oh, yeah, so, I mean, that was the, back then I didn't, you know, think about how glass was made, you know, so it was kind of intriguing to know that that's how it was made in the studio. So that was my impression, you know, signing up for the class, you know, like, okay, cool, I'm making bongs and pipes. So we're in the studio, it was about, you know, like 1 a.m. And I just pulled up the community college website and enrolled myself in the class without really doing any research or anything. So I showed up to the studio first day of class and that was the first thing that they said. We will not be making any bongs or pipes because <laughs> it's a nonprofit organization. Well, that's something you don't hear, you know, when you, when you hear the, uh, don't do drugs thing, don't smoke weed in school, they don't tell you, it might turn you into an artist. Yeah, that's the good exactly. Part of it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
So I know one of the things that you're passionate about is diversifying the glassmaking field. I don't know that much about it, but I'm figuring that some of the barriers, including, are include that you can't just do it in your home. You need access to a studio, right? And are are the materials expensive? Yes, uh, glass mold is very expensive, <laughs> um, and then also exposure. You know, in a lot of black and brown communities. There's not a lot of exposure to glass blowing or any other types of crafts. Also, in these communities, being a craftsman or an artisan is kind of frowned upon. You know, you're raised to get a job or, you know, go to school and get a job or play sports and take one of those type of career paths. So, you know, no one ever... Which you were doing because you were studying business, right? That was one of your paths. Correct. Correct. I mean, I was studying business and... It, you know, school was easy for me and it was kind of like a hustle. You know, I, I kind of figured out that I could get paid to go to school. Like even in college, I had a very privileged situation where my stepdad was a disabled veteran. So I got actually paid to go to school and then I was actually on the dean's honor roll. So I got my tuition waived too and got well, a federal. That's, that's federal on you. Program. That's not you. So, <laughs> exactly. I like figured that out. You know, if I just do good at school, you know, I can make money and do other things with it. And, you know, business was something that I was always interested in. But, you know, in glass, it's not something that you're exposed to. And it's not it's like a rich white sport. It's like kind of like a country club, you know, where there's exclusive access to it. But now we see like some of those things changing. Like when I first started blowing glass, that was one of the things that really solidified my role in it was when I, you know, started doing research and Googling like famous black glass artists and, you know, only got three results. You know, there was Thurman Statham, there was uh, Deborah Moore, and then uh, Shay Rhodes that popped up. That was kind of like solidifying my role. It's kind of like it was a shorter line than doing music. But you talked about it as a country club. A lot, a lot of people might have decided this is not a country club I want to join. What made you want to stick with it then? I mean, it just needed to be more reference points for other black and brown kids who can see that, you know, a field in glass or any other craft is a viable career path. You know, it has its ups and downs just like anything else, but um, there's opportunities there and then people can grow from it. And it has like certain healing properties too. Like when you're in the studio, you know, you're kind of like locked into this world and you're not really thinking about what's going on on the outside. So you really engage with the material and, you know, what you're doing at the time. That's so interesting because I, when I've seen Glass Long, it looks so physically taxing. So it's interesting for you to talk about it as a, as a healing art. Yeah. It, I mean, it is. It's kind of like high yoga a little bit when you just, you're standing in front of this thing, you hear the, the hum of the furnace and you get to hang out with your friend all day and then talk about things and you get to grow with each other and talk about things and, you know, learn from each other. I'd love to talk about crafting the future now and how you decided to get involved in it. Um, So my involvement with crafting the future started pre-COVID. We threw an event, I think 2019, I think that was before COVID, or it was the beginning of 2020. So it was in February, we threw an event called Better Together, which was for Black History Month. We wanted to throw an event to support like black and brown makers and set up like a vendor market here in the glass studio so they can uh, sell their wares 
free of charge. And then, you know, we rallied up all the black glass artists that we could find, which was like seven at the time. We were like talking about an organization to support. And Corey had started an organization called Crafting the Future um, with his friend Annie Evelyn a while back. And it kind of grew into that. After that event, the Better Together event, Crafting the Future kind of grew legs. You know, what Crafting the Future does is diversifies the field of art, craft, and design and connect people with opportunities to help them thrive. The timeline, you know, from that event and then, you know, we go into COVID and then a lot of things happen within the world, you know, with um, the George Floyd thing and there's a lot of things going on in the country. So, you know, people were locked up in the house and trying to figure out what to do. And then, you know, we gained a lot of support during COVID and the organization grew like rapidly and we were able to raise a lot of money and provide over 70, I think, 70 scholarships for students to go to different craft schools. That's really incredible in just what? So COVID like three years, it sounds like. Yes. Yes. We had to take a year off because, you know, we couldn't, all the craft schools are pretty much shut down. Um, but once ev- everything opened back up, we were able to send everyone to all the different craft schools in the United States to study, you know, different mediums, you know, glass, metalsmithing, woodworking, uh, ceramics. And um, it took off. And then, you know, my involvement with Craft in the Future is I am the events and resources manager, in particular with the Better Together. This year, we threw the second Better Together in New Orleans with our youth arts organization partner called Yaya, which was the fiscal sponsor for Crafting the Future when everything first like jumped off. So we threw that event in, in January. Is Yaya based in New Orleans? Yes, it is. And how did that go? Oh, it was amazing. You know, we did the same type of thing. We had music, we had a demonstration, an interactive demo with the crowd. Um, and each Better Together artist, participating artists, got to do a separate demo and we had a marketplace. You know, we try to involve the community in each city. So now we're, we're taking it on tour and involving more of the community there and finding vendors and connecting with people in the community. And then we also did a thing where we did a workshop with them after the event ended for a week. So we actually worked with the students there at Yaya and built like a, a quilt made of a fused glass so that way everybody can have like a hand in it and a part of them goes into this uh a larger piece that sounds amazing what have you heard from your first cohort of students to have gotten a scholarship what what are some of the success stories you're hearing i mean just you know how it was just life-changing you know like they go to these these places and it's like a magical place you know there's no there's no tv Sometimes you don't even have internet service. You know, you're just focusing on, you know, learning something new or developing more of your craft um, and then connecting with people. And what have you learned about yourself doing this kind of work that you're that you're doing with crafting the future? What I really learned is it's just everything's bigger than me. You know, it's not about me. It's and what I realize is I've been placed here on this earth not for myself, but to help others, to be of service and to provide reference points and opportunities. And as I grow within my career, you know, I can kind of bring people with me. Is that a realization that's come more recently? 
Um, I think it's always been there. You know, when I was in Tulsa, I was actually uh, an instructor as well. I worked with a lot of after-school programs with underserved youth in the community there. And what were you teaching? Were you teaching? I was a glass instructor. So, you know, I've worked with like different um, organizations that we partner with at the nonprofit organization. That kind of like built the framework of me like being of service, being a, a teacher and an instructor and helping people, just being of service to others. Now, one thing that I always like to talk about with our guests is kind of systemic change, reinventing systems that are no longer working. In terms of diversifying the glassmaking field, is there kind of a kind of a no-brainer way in which a system could be reinvented so that the field could be more diverse, a, a, a way that is not immediately obvious to someone like me? One is providing access and access support and, you know, funding. So like, uh, you know, when everything with the George Floyd thing, everybody was very supportive of things. But, you know, after a couple of years, a lot of people taper off or they just want to check a box, you know, like, oh, we support BIPOC or we want to just have some images so we can increase enrollment and things like that. And then sustainability, too, because a lot of the opportunities that are presented sometimes from different organizations are kind of like false opportunities because you're dealing with a group of people who are dealing with other things. You know, you have young kids who are living in these communities and they have other things to worry about at home. So, you know, they come to this place and there's no support. Yeah, you offer them a residency and then they make some work. And then they got to configure out how to get it back, you know, so shipping and funding and, and things like that. And then what do they do after that? What if they don't have access to a studio at home? Yeah. So we try to connect people with studios or different opportunities in their area. And then like what how can we support them, whether it be like a vendor marketplace online. So we're working on developing a vendor marketplace on the Craft in the Future website. We already have a network which supports artists. So like if people are looking to support artists, we have a network page there with lots of different artists and uh, makers to choose from. So like if you wanted someone who makes hats or who makes shoes or someone who makes jewelry or glass or furniture, you know, you can go deep dive into the network and support one of those artists and, you know, finding other types of resources like grant opportunities you know, posting those grants and connecting them with grants that are going in and even helping them with writing those grants, like grant writing and finding people who can help with that, like a grant writing workshop. Every every aspect, you know, even if it comes down to images, you know, how can we connect you with someone and help you get those images? How can we help you with an application? That's what we're here for. How do you think the the art of glass would benefit from having a more uh, diverse set of artists working in it? I mean, everyone brings a different style or different flair to to glassblowing, you know? I kind of, you know, and I'm going to take it out of the field of like art and craft and bring it into something else like sports. When sports became more diverse, you got a lot of different things. You got a three-point line. That was developed, you know, that was, that was developed out of diversity, 
because, you know, people were coming in dunking. Nobody's seen a dunk before. So it's like, oh, we got to do something about that. Here's a three-point line. And then you got different things in, like, football. Like, you had Deion Sanders, who changed the game of football, you know, with fashion. And you got end zone dances and celebrations. And you got all these different things, like, the colors and the jerseys and the shoes and the, all those things that embody that as well. So, I mean, like that flows over into art as well. Like when it becomes more diverse, people bring more of their personal style into what they make. You get some diversity there in, in what's being made and how it's being made and how they present it to the world. And we, we have Instagram now, so we have our own gallery. We have our own channel, TV channel. So, you know, different people are going to do different things. And then, you know, just make a ruckus, you know, shake things up to where it's not like this sacred thing. Oh, what do you mean by that? I mean, that's what Glass One was. It was a very sacred uh-huh. thing. Like in Murano, it was so sacred. You know, people used to get kidnapped. Wow. They used to, yeah, they used to kidnap like apprentices on the island just so they can learn the secrets of like how glass was being melted, like how to melt clear glass or how to learn different techniques. So now it's like it's become more loose in that aspect. But some people hold on to those that way of thinking. Could you describe you mentioned that everybody brings their own flair and style to the art. How would you describe your own flair and style? It just goes from like my interests, you know, with music and fashion and just being stylish, you know, and then like color. <laughs> like I love I love color. You know, what really drew me into like popular culture was like the Memphis Design Group when I just discovered that aspect and the glass that was made and that and the connection with that era in the 80s with music. You know, a lot of those those patterns were prevalent in, in music like Yo! MTV Raps had that same Memphis Design type logo and I used to see it a lot not knowing what it was, you know, when I was a kid. And then you grow into this space and you see all these things. So, you know, taking all these little aspects of like pattern and color from like fashion and different design eras. Now you're also bringing back to your business side. You're also uh, an entrepreneur, a business guy. You you also make functional art, which you sell. Um, Mm -hmm. So I have a couple of questions about that. When when you're working on new pieces, do you feel, do you make a distinction between what's going to feed the business side versus the purely artistic, or is that distinction at all important for you? Um, More so now. I mean, this year I've been doing that. You know, I make a lot of collections for this company, Heath Ceramics, so I create the glassware for them for their summer and their winter collection. So everything's more production style. And then this year I've dedicated a day or two for myself to kind of like have fun and let loose and, and experiment. So now I have a partnership with them to do a show next year in June to make a hundred different objects. There are a hundred one-off objects. So that's kind of for me to express um, my artistic outlet, which I haven't, I've never really gotten to do. It was just more of like what feeds the business in what keeps money coming in. I mean, and even in, in production too and developing new products, you still have to like do samples and make things. So, you know, you still have a little fun there as well. So that's interesting. So it's new to you to really set aside time to do purely play. 
and imagination. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, back early in the, when I was in Tulsa, that's, that's all it was. I was just having fun. Cause you were learning. Exactly. And it was free for me to blow glass, you know, like I didn't have to pay to rent the studio. I worked there, so I got time to make my own work for free. Now, living in L.A. is totally different. You have to rent a studio. So you basically have to think about what you're going to make to produce, to cover that cost, and to keep you paid. So in your dream of dreams, would you? is your hope that you, most of your time will be playtime, or do you really also love um, the production model? Uh, I would like... Both. I want a 50-50 model because, you know, you gain a lot of skill from making the same object over and over and over again. Um, it's like perpetual practice. So you learn a lot, a lot of things in doing the same, the same movements a lot. And then you develop new techniques and you learn how to cut out a little bit of the steps. So it's a lot of problem solving that goes into production, which you can flow into the artistic side as well. What's been the sharpest learning curve for you on the business side of things? Oh, man, everything. It's like you got to figure it all out. So, you know, you're a one-man band. You got to make the work. You got you to gotta co-work it, which is like a finishing process. Then you got to pack it. Then you got to ship it. Then you got to do the bookkeeping, you know? So it's like you have to do everything. It's like you go from working a nine-to-five to working a five-to-five, you know, just a lot of problem solving and, and, you know, collecting data along the way and then making improvements and then learning how to, like, be patient with yourself and stay productive and remain positive throughout everything, even like dips when there's dips in the business where you become worried, you know, staying poised in those, those situations and trusting in the process. How did you create a relationship with Heath Ceramics? How did that come about? I made a website during the pandemic um, through Shopify. It was kind of out of fear. I'm like, all right, I don't know what's going to happen because I was working for somebody else. And, and I felt like I needed to do something for myself because someone told me a long time ago that, that having a job is riskier than working for yourself. Cause, I mean, when you work for yourself, you, you're in control. You know, if somebody else's business goes down and you go down with it. And you have to switch gears and figure out what you're going to do for yourself. So I created a website through Shopify and then made like one product or I think that yeah, was like one product, two products actually, and um, start posting it on Instagram. And, you know, that's been the main thing is just showing the work. So on Instagram, just continuously doing things and showing up. And then I had a chat that I set up on my website to where people can talk to me. And it go directly to my phone, like a text message. You know, Heat Ceramics, I don't know how they see me on Instagram, I think, and then took notice of me. And then we had a meeting and they wanted me to build a collection. Actually, they wanted just like one item, which was like a, a basic tumbler. So I just took that idea and ran with it and I built the whole collection. So I made like a series of vases, tumblers and bowls. And Wow. Um, kind of solidified our relationship. Can you talk about any, um, in terms of your your play day, what you're working on, can you talk about any projects or experimentations that you're particularly excited about on those days of imagination? Um, yeah, so like I've been recently working on a series of lighting 
Um, so it's still functional, but it's like sculptural type lighting and it's bright and bold and very colorful and, you know, incorporating pattern and trying different techniques to make the pattern as well. And just being free of like measuring things, just making objects and then rearranging them on my shelf and then making some more objects and then finally bring them to life and wiring them up. My goal is towards the end of the year to have like five to seven lamps made to present to a, there's a gallery here in Los Angeles, a design gallery. What they do is uh, they sell furniture and art. So we have a, a deal to, it's kind of like a testing ground to see, you know, how the world reacts to them. And that's a year from now? That's at the end of the year. So oh, December, all right. I'll, I'll present those in December and then I'll keep making them and present them to another gallery and then incorporate some of those in my show as well. There is a longer version of this interview that contains images of some of Cedric's pieces as well as video of him at work. You can find it on our website at uncsa.edu slash art restart. I really encourage you to take a look. Also, given that the holidays are coming fast upon us, be sure to shop Cedric's website at cedricmitchelldesign.com. His objects would make amazing gifts, in my opinion. If you're enjoying these interviews with innovative artists, won't you please let a friend know about this podcast? We really rely on your word of mouth to reach new listeners, so please help us spread the word. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti, and on behalf of the Keenan Institute for the Arts, thanks so much for listening.